you don't have to look uh, very far hard to realize that there are parts of our world that are just a little bit disordered. You don't even have to have a particular faith conviction to see that there are parts of this world that are in deep need of change. But if we're honest with ourselves, if you're like me, it can be overwhelming to consider how to solve these huge problems of the world that we live in. Poverty inequity, conflict between nations and peoples, climate change, trafficking like their material. The list could go on and on and on, and I'm sure you could add many. But there's a fundamental belief in the Christian story that, that God intends for this world to be good, and we've been singing about it this morning, and for all that we live in to, be, to exhibit beauty in harmony and, in, and this mutually official relationship with one another. In the Glick meeting room, uh, it's a meeting room over here in our office area, there's an art piece of woven fabric accompanied by a quote from New York City pastor Tim Keller in, from his book, Generous Justice. And he says this, Woven cloth consists of innumerable threads interlaced with one another. Even more than the architectural image, the fabric metaphor conveys the importance of relationships. If you throw a thousand pieces of thread onto a table, no fabric results. The threads must be rightly and intimately related to one another in literally a million ways. Each thread must go over and under and around and through the others at thousands of points. Only then do you get a fabric that is beautiful and strong, that covers, that fits, that holds that shelters and delights. Just as rightly related physical elements form a cosmos or a tapestry, so rightly related human beings form a community. And this interwovenness is what the Bible calls shalom, or harmonious peace. Tim Keller's image describes this deliberate intention on God's work in the world. There is an acknowledgement of chaos without someone forming these fabrics and weaving them with intention. There is a reordering of our creation towards beauty and towards justice. Intercession is this first step of acknowledging that things in our world are out of sorts. And this disorderedness is not to be ignored. But through prayer and subsequently through action, we become part of God's reordering of the world. In, praying the missions, in this Praying the Mission series, we move from this prayer from the center of the universe in John 17, looking at how Jesus himself prayed, to praying for people that we are in relationship with in Ephesians 3. And last week we heard about how we can pray for cities and communities to be changed and to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy 3. And so we continue this outward expansion of prayer to attend to global needs and the needs of our world around us. Our goal in intercessory prayer is to join with God's mission in the world to renew it. And this prayer activity for humans is meant to lead us into real and genuine activity in the world. So I want to approach how we pray for the world a little differently than the past messages in the series. I want to identify this underlying framework that helps us know what is exactly needed in prayer. And with that framework in mind, I want to invite you into this life of intercession for the world. I want to invite you into prayer that changes the world. 
You can do that by three steps. Seeing that God sees, seeing what God sees, and moving as God moves. Seeing that God sees, seeing what God sees, and moving as God moves. You know, often we, when we pray, we can feel alone in carrying the burden. We feel that we are the only ones who see things that aren't right in this world. But the texts that we heard read indicate that nothing escapes God's attention. In the fall account in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve eat of this forbidden fruit, God knows that something has gone awry, something that has, has been upset in the created order. When our first parents mistrusted God, there was a consequence to their action that has rippled throughout history until now. God addresses these three characters in the passage with a consequence. Their actions have upset the balance of relationships in all of creation. In creation, we see the relationship between the serpent and the livestock and the woman's offspring changes. What the serpent did in his craftiness introduced a struggle into creation. And the serpent's life would now be characterized by enmity and difficulty. And in the curse, the serpent would experience the worst hardship amongst all of God's creation. Now just a sidebar here, clearly the serpent is not just a cartoon character that happens to be able to talk. For Jewish hearers, this creation and fall account is not so much a historically accurate account as our modern understanding of historical writing, as much as it is poetic that uses the richness of images to describe a genuine reality. The serpent has all the descriptions of a sentient being beyond just an animal. The serpent has, uh, it approaches Eve. We're told the serpent has a conversation with her. The serpent is able to deceive her. And as we read this passage, he experiences God's curse. Yet this text hints at the that the end of this eternal struggle between the serpent and Eve's offspring has already been decided. God knows the end of the story. The serpent will be crushed by the one offspring of Eve, which on this side of the cross in history we know is Jesus Christ. But until Christ's victory over the serpent is complete, there is a spiritual struggle going on for power and for influence in our world. And it's an age-old struggle that continues even in our time. There's an upset of balance, a power between, amongst creation, but there's also an upset of balance and power within humanity. There's a struggle for power and influence that has changed how women and men relate to one another. When God speaks to Eve in verse 16, he says, I will make childbearing very severe, but, and I'll change your relationship with your husband. There's a change in relationship with humanity's interaction with the world and our role in the created order. In Genesis 3.18, God essentially says to Adam, because of your sin, your work is going to be really hard, and then you're going to die. God sees that what is in need of change the moment humans turn their backs on God. And we see that continue in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. We also see that God sees in Exodus 3, when he calls Moses to release the Hebrews from Egyptian slavery. He says, the Lord, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cry, and because, uh, uh, 
have them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. God sees, God hears, God is concerned. He's concerned for their suffering, and he wants to rescue them and bring, him, bring them to the promised land. That God sees has an implication on our intercession. It means that we can pray hopefully. We're not the only ones who see. The problems in this world are rooted in an ancient crevice between God and humanity, between humanity and the created order, and between women and men. This deep crevice is not invisible to the living God. And the cracks of conflict, the cracks of corruption and of greed and of self-righteousness, of deceit, of abuse, of unpunished crimes, they may seem very obvious to some of us as we come across them. They might even overwhelm us, but these cracks that surface up in our world are also not unknown to the living God. They do not overwhelm the God of Scripture. They, come, they do not come as a surprise to the living God, nor does he turn his face away. God sees it all. Therefore, our prayers do not have to be fraught with hopelessness. We can pray with hope, or simply we can actually pray. When we see the headlines or the ch- of the challenges in our world, we don't have to turn our eyes away saying, it's too depressing, I can't watch the news. I don't know what difference I can actually make. We can pray because what we see is not a surprise to the one that we pray to. Our favorite human heroes, maybe it's Martin Luther King Jr. for the civil rights, or Greta Thunberg for climate change, or Brian Stevenson for wrongfully accused de- uh, death row inmates. You can insert your favorite hero here. They aren't the only ones who see what's wrong in the world. They aren't the only ones with a platform. The living God sees. The living God knows. And God is doing something about it. That's liberating for us. We're not trying to convince God that there's a problem in the world. I'm pretty sure he knows. Our prayers are offered up on this firm ground of God's attentive care and his faithful promises to us. So we can be encouraged to pray faithfully, but we can also be encouraged encouraged to pray faithfully. Now, not only do we know that God sees, we have the opportunity to see what God sees. When we look around the world, and it can be overwhelming. News of China's economy, America's economy, Russia is flexing its muscles abroad, the president abusing his power in office versus those who think that the impeachment is a witch hunt, Climate change deniers versus climate change science. The right to own guns versus the right to public safety. Plastic in the ocean containing viruses around the world. Systemic poverty, child trafficking, refugee crisis, on and on and on and on. How do you begin tackling all these problems, let alone with boots on the ground to actually bring meaningful change? When you begin to realize What God sees is going on. It changes how we pray and we might respond. Many of the issues we observe in this world are about an imbalance of power, but perhaps not the way that we might expect. For those on the left, there's a fear that the elite and the wealthy hold too much power. For those on the right, there's a fear that the government holds too much power and influence over our individual rights. But scripture paints a different kind of picture of what's wrong with this imbalance. It's not an imbalance between left and right or whatever uh, dichotomy that you want to paint. It's actually a power imbalance between the living God and humanity. It's a power imbalance that is a result of sin. 
At its core, sin is believing that we can wield power that only God can wield in perfect love. That's what Adam and Eve did when they ate of the forbidden fruit. They were tempted by the power and the knowledge that God had, thinking they deserved to hold that power for themselves. They doubted the perfect love of the living God, and their action reverberates throughout all of human history. Since the fall, power is now wielded out of fear and control rather than given in trust and love. That's the image we see when God comes to Moses to lead God's people out of captivity. The enslavement of the Hebrews to Egypt here is a historical event, but we would be remiss to only focus on the historical and academic significance of Israel's deliverance. Through scripture, we see two storylines developing. It's a comparison of two kingdoms found in scripture, a kingdom characterized by this term we'll call empire, and a kingdom characterized by this term as shalom that's found in scripture. Egypt here is a nation, but even more in the story, Egypt is a metaphor. Egypt represents empire. Egypt is oppressing Israel, that's empire. Egypt is leading by fear and exertion of power rather than love and compassion. That's empire. Egypt is characterized by confidence in powerful pharaohs and powerful leaders, in strong armies and in multiple gods to be called upon by magicians and wise men. That's empire. And Egypt wields its power by oppressing anyone who is not on their side or who is in their way. Egypt, an empire, is seeing some people as being expendable. Empire is where humans use all their might to control their narrative, to control their story. Can you think of any empire going on in this town? When you see a culture where lives of people are cheap and some people are expendable, then those are signs that we're living according to the wrong story. But the God of Scripture offers a different story. Shalom is where we trust that God's goodness is for us and for the world around us. And though God is the most powerful being in the universe, God does not wield that power in fear or in control. Rather, that power is shared in love. And shalom is where God creates order out of the chaos. That's the whole creation account. Shalom is where God invites us into this order-making work in the world as Adam and Eve had in the garden. And God is in process of restoring order through the people of God, people like Moses, people like you and I. And ultimately, we see that God is restoring shalom or the flourishing of the world that isn't characterized by fear and clamoring for power or controlling the narrative through human effort. God is restoring shalom to the entire creation through Jesus, God's own son. And this changes how we pray for things. We see that all brokenness and all conflict and all imbalance of power and abuse is the result of humans living according to the storyline of empire rather than the storyline of shalom, for God's shalom for creation. So we can pray for God's shalom, for God's desire for all humans to flourish. And this changes the tone of how we pray. In our prayer, we can name those injustices. We can call out the abuse and the evil in the, in the world that may anger us. 
but we don't have to stay in that anger. We don't have to stay in that indignation. We can also pray for God's good and perfect will to be done and to come to its completion. We can pray that God's people would do their part in showing the world what a flourishing life looks like. As we learned last week, we can pray for leaders in our communities that, to make wise decisions that lead to quiet and a peace, peaceable life for all, whether or not they are Jesus followers, whether or not they proclaim themselves to be Christians. We can pray for God's grace to be at work in our societies and in our cultures. So what does this look like? Here's maybe perhaps what I've, how I've been praying for a particular issue. So I've been recently learning about how our shopping habits have global impact. Now, I'm not counting on online shopping and that whole issue of dehumanizing demands of logistics industry. I'm looking at something simply called fast fashion. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's a reference to fashion retailers who create inexpensive designs that go from catwalks to stores in very rapid cycles. You see, previously, in this industry, there, you know, a fashion retailer might generate one line in a season. But because now they're generating multiple lines even in a month, sometimes in a week, there's tons of waste going on. Did you know that the fashion industry is the second largest polluting industry in the world? It's adding to plastics in the oceans. And even if you recycle your clothes, a lot of our clothes use synthetics, which are plastic and petroleum byproducts. And these end up as microfibers, microplastics in the oceans because there's so much excess clothing. Then there's the carbon emissions of the fashion industry. The fashion industry is responsible for 10% of our global annual carbon emissions. That's more than all international flights and all maritime traffic in the world combined. And at this pace, the fashion industry's greenhouse gas emissions will surge to more than 50% uh, of them present in 10 years. The fashion industry is the largest consumer of fresh water in the world. So here's my t-shirt. It's like a Darth Vader t-shirt. It takes 700 gallons of water, fresh water, to create this one t-shirt. The pair of jeans. It takes 2,000 gallons of fresh water to create this pair of jeans. It's a lot of fresh water. So when I come across news like this, my first response is denial and skepticism. Okay, who's, so I Google it. I find out what's really going on here. And when those numbers are confirmed, I start to feel depressed. What am I supposed to do, not wear clothes? Maybe, and then I begin to pray. It's like indignation. Oh, can you believe people are getting away with this? Ah, those corporations, judgments against them. Pray for marketers and Instagram, uh, Instagram uh, influencers and advertisers. They're creating this greed in the world that are lining the pockets of corporations. Pray for the people. And then maybe I'll think of the people who are actually making all these clothes for us who live on less than $2 a day to feed their family on the other side of the world. Pray for against this damage to the environment and the people who are suffering from it. Pray against these corrupt governments or local officials who permit abuse of their land for a quick buck. All this judgment in my prayer. But then I reach this place of confession. I realize that I shop at all these places. I'm part of the problem. I'm not less... I'm no less guilty before God, though I may not be dumping tons of water, uh, pollution into the water. 
my decisions affect those. But then I realize even more that as I've been praying, all this judgment, that I'm praying from the storyline of empire rather than the storyline of shalom. I'm using my connection with God to bludgeon those evildoers in my imagination. So I confess of my self-righteousness and express gratitude to God's gift of grace towards me. And then I begin to pray for shalom. I pray not just for those who are offended to be healed and comforted, but I pray for shalom for the perpetrators, those who are making those decisions, saying, hey, maybe we can do things differently. Pray for the corporations. Pray for us as consumers. Pray for a world that feels that the need to consume new products to feel a sense of acceptance or that I'm special. Deep inside, we have a generation who is living according to the storyline of empire rather than shalom. We pray for people to know the depth of God's love for them. See how that changes how we pray for people and pray for issues in our world? When we see empire versus shalom, this changes how we see the world. Our world is living according to the storyline of empire, controlled by fear, controlled by insecurity, controlled by exerting power. But when God leads, the storyline is one of shalom. It's characterized by trust and confidence in God's desire for good and in an invitation for God's people to bear witness to the goodness of God. And that changes how we pray. As we conclude our series on intercessory prayer this week, I hope that you are inspired, that you have been inspired to pray more, to pray more for your friends, to pray more for the communities that you live in and work in and play in, and to pray more for the needs of our world. And this is, this is a part of what God has been doing since the beginning of time. Jesus, the Son of God, continues to intercede for us and for the world at the right hand of God the Father. And if we are faithful students of Scripture, I hope that we realize the way God sees the world and the way that God moves in the world is not through the lens of empire, but through the lens of shalom. Jesus isn't praying for his people, uh, for, for the destruction of the world and of evil. Jesus is praying for his people to be one. Jesus is praying for the world to be set right as his people come into right relationship with God. Jesus is praying for the flourishing of God's creation. Jesus is praying for shalom. And so we are invited to pray as Jesus prays and to move as God moves. Our prayers aren't just a judgment on what we happen to think is right or wrong in the world by invoking God's name. Our prayer is not a wish list of what we want right in this world. Our prayers aren't meant to be a flex of our spiritual or social justice wokeness. Our prayers don't have to be characterized by fear of what might happen. When Jesus invites us to pray, we are invited to pray the same storyline that Jesus prays, the storyline of shalom that God has been writing since the beginning of time. In the arrival of Jesus Christ, we see that the living God has moved into the world with hope and with redemption, not with fear and domination. Jesus, the most powerful being in the universe, took his power, moved into our broken world, and came not to set up an empire in the world, but to serve the world with shalom. And so when we pray for our world, 
Is it based on the storyline of empire? Or is it based on the storyline of shalom? You know, we began the message with this image of the woven threads on the screen. And Rebecca Hunt shared with me the story behind this piece. Under Katie Keister's leadership, if you you might know her, this piece was created at one of our retreats by many of you here at WCF. Everyone contributed a thread, and it was eventually woven together to become this fragment of fabric before you. Shalom is God's intention and design for all of creation. And like this small patch of fabric, God weaves together the individual and varied strands of our lives to form something that is beautiful and something that is good, reflecting his glory, reflecting his beauty. And our intercession for shalom in our world is seeing and recognizing the holes and the frays and the disordered threads in the fabric of our world. Our prayers are lifted up, that are lifted up for God to restore creation in all of its glory. And our prayers are like these raw fibers that form the threads. And it's in our action, in our activity in the world, that these threads eventually become weaved together by a work of the Spirit. As we seek the shalom of God in the world, we find that our prayer and our action become part of this beautiful display of God's love and beauty in the world. WCF, may we become a community that participates in God's mission in the world through prayer and through our action. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for showing us who we are through your word and showing us what the world is through your word. And we pray that we might be a people that doesn't live according to the storyline of empire, wielding you sometimes to accomplish our goals. Instead, that we would live according to the storyline of shalom, characterized by love and compassion and hope in your work in the world to make all things new, that we get to be a part of that. I pray that as our prayers, as we see things in this world that may burden us, that we would be hear your call to pray, but also hear your call to action. So WCF would become part of this weaving of threads through our relationships here, through our connecting points, that others would see your beauty and your glory through us. Thank you that we get to be a part of that. We ask these things in your names, in your son's name, and for your glory.